Amen. Thank you for being here with us, for praying with us, for worshiping with us this morning, and now for gathering together around the Word of God. We have been working our way as a church through the Gospel of Luke, and our passage this morning represents a big shift in that Gospel, because now we come to where Jesus enters into what is called his public ministry, and this occurs in his home region of Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel. And so far, everything we've seen in Luke up to this point has basically been prologue. Luke is setting the stage for Jesus to begin his work, from the predictions made about him before he was born, to his birth, to his childhood, to his baptism, to last week how we saw his testing in the wilderness. Luke has been showing us how Jesus has been prepared by God to be the Messiah, the anointed one who had been prophesied about in the Hebrew scriptures, who would come to save his people from their sins. From his virgin birth, to his commitment to the Lord, even from a young age, to his baptism with his people, to his perfect resisting of temptation, at every step Jesus has shown himself to be just that. And we've just had glimpses of this. But for about 30 years, Jesus has been preparing for this moment, preparing quietly, preparing inconspicuously, working away as an ordinary seeming man, and now he's going to launch himself into society in a remarkable way. And the reactions to Jesus are going to be really varied as he does this. But this begins in earnest the first major section of Luke's gospel. He's going to begin with Jesus ministering up in Galilee in the north part of Israel in his home region. And while Jesus does this, he'll make a name for himself as a teacher and a healer in those two primary roles and also as a controversial figure. And that's the first major section of this book, which goes through chapter 9. It's introducing Jesus to the world. From there, in the second section of the book, Jesus will set his face toward Jerusalem and in chapters 10 to 18 begin traveling there and teaching what it means to be a follower of him. And then from chapter 19 to the end of the book, he's in Jerusalem where he will die and rise from the dead. We know in reality that Jesus often went back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem, but this is how Luke structures his his gospel. And so this year, going until about early August, we're going to be working our way through that first section of Jesus in Galilee. This is introducing Jesus to the world as he enters on to the world stage. And it starts with a stop in his hometown of Nazareth. There's two things to focus on in this passage that we'll look at this morning. The first is the message that Jesus brings. And the second is the way that people respond to this message. Both of these will be paralleled in our own experience. We want to rightly understand Jesus' message for ourselves, and then we want to think about how we are going to respond to Jesus. So read with me. I'll read Luke 4, verses 14, all the way through verse 30. It says, And Jesus returned, this is following his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow." And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. That's where our passage will end. But our passage began in verse 14 a summary statement of what Jesus was doing. This was not the first time he came into a synagogue and began teaching people. After Jesus returned from the wilderness, he went in and around the whole region of Galilee, still led by the Holy Spirit, and he was growing greatly in popularity. He was generally well-received. That's what Luke means by he was glorified by all there in verse 15. The people enjoyed his teaching. And it's possible, it's probably even likely, as we'll see, that he was doing miracles at this time too, but Luke doesn't even say that here, but Luke is setting the stage. Jesus is becoming a bit of a local celebrity, very popular, people want to come hear him, and primarily he's being popular for one reason, as a teacher. Jesus comes and he teaches. He goes to the synagogues of Galilee and he teaches. And so you see that word, synagogues. He taught in their synagogues, verse 15. Synagogues were places of learning and worship for Jewish believers. They're not entirely unlike churches in some ways. They do some of the same things that we do in church. But it's interesting because we don't see synagogues in the Old Testament. We have all this story of Israel and hundreds and hundreds of years, and there's nothing called a synagogue. And then you get to the New Testament, they seem to dot the landscape of the Jewish world. Everywhere there's Jewish people, there are these institutions called synagogues. And this is a reminder to us that when we read the Bible and we turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, from Old Testament to New Testament, we're just turning one page in our Bible, but we are flipping 400 years in history, older than our country, the United States of America. So a lot can happen in 400 years, and a lot did happen with the Jewish people in those 400 years, because after they were exiled from Babylon and they returned back to Israel, one of the things that they wanted to really emphasize was a growing awareness of the scriptures. We need to know the word of God so this doesn't happen again, so we don't fall into idolatry, so we don't get exiled again. And one of the things that emerged out of this growing emphasis were these places called synagogues, where they would come together to learn the word of God. And by the New Testament, they are widespread. God has put these synagogues all throughout the Jewish world now so that Jesus can go into them and preach. We'll see this in the book of Acts. The apostles go in and preach, and this is primarily how the word of God was spread. 
But it's interesting, it's hard to say a lot of what actually happened in the synagogues in Jesus' day. Like, what was a service at the synagogue like? We don't know a whole lot because the Gospels themselves are the earliest records of anything that happened in the synagogues. We have later summaries of like what happened, and so that might have been similar to what happened before, but we don't know. Other things can be speculated from later traditions, but what we do know is that these were places of learning the scriptures. And so Jesus came there to teach as a regular practice. He'd become known as a rabbi or a teacher, and so he was given space to share his interpretations, his applications of the Bible. And that's what he did when he went to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stands to read the scriptures. Did you note that? He stands up to read, and then he sits down to preach. So kind of the reverse of what I was doing this morning. Sitting down while we had our scripture reading, now I'm standing. But Jesus stands to read the scriptures. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. He goes straight to what we have in our Bibles as Isaiah chapter 61. We read this this morning as our scripture reading, but Jesus will read it and he will cut off a little bit early. Let's look again as Luke has it in verses 18 and 19 in our text. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 with a little bit of Isaiah 58 verse 6 tossed in for good measure. We don't know why Jesus chose to do that, but he referenced a little bit of an earlier verse there too. But these scriptures speak about a servant of God who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, who is anointed by God. You think of anointing, you know, like putting oil on someone to designate something special about them. But this idea of one being anointed by the Holy Spirit is where we get our idea of what the the Jews called the Messiah in Hebrew. The Messiah means the anointed one. That's where our word Christ, which comes through the Greek, means the anointed one, a specially designated servant of God who will do God's will and fulfill various prophecies. And Jesus, of course, is that Messiah. He is the Christ, and he's come to announce the good news of the reign of God. And now look who's identified in this passage as to who this good news is for. It's for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And so first off, the poor. This is a main emphasis in the Gospel of Luke. This is probably why Luke leads Jesus' public ministry with this account, because he's come for the poor. And the poor is this all-encompassing term describing those whom Jesus has come to reach. It's not just those with little or no money, though it includes those with little or no money, but in Luke, the poor can include all of those that are on the margins of society, those generally excluded from popular human circles. He's talking about outcasts. He's talking about nobodies. Next, this scripture refers to prisoners. And though we never once, do you notice this? We never once see Jesus freeing literal prisoners during his ministry. And so we take this to be metaphorical. We read earlier in our last chapter that John the Baptist was thrown in prison. And he stayed there throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus did not go and free even John from prison. But Jesus brought freedom to many who were spiritually imprisoned, those who were held in bondage by Satan, those who were imprisoned by their own sin. 
Next, he speaks of the blind, recovery of sight for the blind. And in Jesus' ministry, this one would be both literal and metaphorical. He would give blind men sight. Those who had never seen would see. And he would open the eyes of those who were spiritually blind in order to see their need for salvation. And last, he says, a come for the oppressed, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And this would call to mind the situation of Israel. As we've talked about at this point, for centuries, they had not typically been an independent nation, but they had operated under the oppression of foreign powers. But of course, Jesus had in mind spiritual truths here as well, that he's come to free those who are spiritually oppressed. But the main point here is that Jesus has come to help those who are in need, those who cannot help themselves. That's the key truth behind the word poor. It means those who are forced to be dependent on others. An old Greek dictionary offers this definition for poor. It says, to be thrust on divine resources. <laughs> to be thrust on divine resources, thrown on to God because you have nobody else to depend on nothing and no one to depend on except God. That's who is poor. And to all those who cannot help themselves, Jesus comes with a great reminder from the scriptures. He says there in verse 19, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops reading. And it's noteworthy that Jesus stops reading where he does. If you paid attention to our earlier scripture reading, you might remember that the next line in Isaiah is, and the day of vengeance of our God. He says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read the second Heart. He stops at the year of the Lord's favor because this is not the day of vengeance of our God. That day will still come, but that is later. Jesus now has not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is the year of the Lord's favor. And I don't have time to go into all the details of this, but it's important here to understand that the wording in Isaiah that Jesus is intentionally quoting is tying this passage back to an older biblical concept that was called the year of Jubilee. Now back in the book of Leviticus, in the laws of Leviticus, the Jewish people were supposed to keep certain practices related to the Sabbath. And we understand this, right? Every seventh day, they were to rest to take a Sabbath day and do no work on those days. That was their regular rhythm in life. And then every seventh year, they were to take a Sabbath year in which they were to let the land have a Sabbath. For a year, they were not to sow or reap the land, but they were to give rest to the land itself. So they do this every seven years. So at year seven, 14, 21, 28, 35, 42. And then at year 49, that means they've done seven years, or seven times they've done Sabbath years. So seven sevens of years. At the seventh Sabbath year, they were to take an additional Sabbath year. So years 49 and 50, they were supposed to let the, let the land rest, and this was called the year of Jubilee. But not only were they to let the land rest another year, they were to do a whole bunch of really radical stuff in the year of Jubilee. During the year of Jubilee, every 50 years in Israel, lands were supposed to be returned to their original tribal owners. Debts were forgiven, 
slaves were released. And so this jubilee provision provided a radical social safety net for Israelite society. It prevented long-term debt slavery, which was rampant in the ancient world. It guaranteed equitable distribution of farmland among the people. Because God was the true owner of the land and God was the true owner of the people, those things belonged to him. No Israelite person could be permanently enslaved and no land could be permanently owned. It could only be temporarily leased from God until the next year of Jubilee when it would return to the family line. And this practice would prevent a few wealthy landowners from accumulating all the land in Israel and enslaving the general population. So this is incredible stuff to read about. It's some of the most radical uh, social practices that you'll see in any society. But a couple of years ago, I was doing research for a paper that I was writing, and I was studying the year of Jubilee as a concept, and my studies only confirmed what I had long suspected. And that's, that's this. I believe that the year of Jubilee, this radical concept of grace and equality and forgiveness, was probably never practiced in Israel. It was too radical. They recognized it to some degree. They probably had celebrations every 50 years, you know, remembrances of things, but there's no evidence of the more radical provisions of this ever having been done. And it's kind of easy to see why. Like, how does that even work for a society to reset everything every 50 years? And when it came down to it, I think it was too complicated, too inconvenient, probably required too much faith And so God's people just began to see it as a symbol of something to come. And they probably never even practiced this in full. But the reminder stayed there in the text. And they would hear about it. And since this came every 50 years, it would happen typically once in a person's adult life. And so it was something to always look forward to and to think, maybe this will be the time that it will actually happen. Maybe things are bad for me now, but they won't always be bad. I trust in a God who's promised to make things right every 50 years. But with those practices put into the hands of sinful men, every time the Jubilee year came around, people would end up disappointed. Slaves would remain slaves. The wealthy would keep the land that rightfully belonged to others in God's society. The Jubilee year then was hopeful in its basis, but practically it had probably become something of a disappointment. But then Jesus comes and he says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is God's year to act. This year the Jubilee Jubilee is really and truly happening and in a better way than you have ever dreamed. And get this, he says, it's happening through me. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, as I read this, this is becoming true. This is becoming fulfilled. Jesus is the one that Isaiah 61 spoke about. Jesus is the one who brings true freedom, true release, and true healing. So he says this, all of this is happening, and all of this is happening through me. And what's the people's reaction to this? They are pumped up. They are excited. They're like, this sounds great. Verse 22 says, they all speak well of him. They marvel at his gracious words. And then they ask, isn't this Joseph's son? And I don't think that's like an insult. It's not like this can't be true because this guy's a nobody. Like, we know him. He can't be the guy. I think it's more like, no way. The Messiah is here, and he's one of us. Like, I used to live right down the street from that guy. I went to high school with him. We played together when we were kids. All of that. And so maybe with that, they were expecting some kind of privileged status. If the Messiah is from Nazareth, 
Maybe we Nazarenes will be the first in line to reap the benefits of his coming and his kingdom. Maybe people will finally respect us and stop using Nazarene as an insult. Maybe things are about to turn around finally, like he's talking about. But of course, this doesn't last. As we read through the passage, it ends with them wanting to kill Jesus. But this time, it's not because Jesus said he was the Messiah. He said that, and they were all fine with that. They're like, yeah, this sounds good. They spoke well of him. They marveled. They're like, hey, Joseph's son is going to be the Messiah. That's an incredible thing. But this time, Jesus says that. He says that he's the Messiah. He says how God's great work of salvation is happening then and there. And it's happening through him. And all the people are like, sweet, this sounds awesome. Everything is going really well for Jesus at this point. He's gone from town to town. He's been well-received. He's really popular. He comes home, which can be the hardest place to be respected sometimes, and he brings an even more radical message that he's the Messiah prophesied of in Scripture. And even at that, he's still well-received. People still like him. This is all going really great, but it's going to turn on a dime, and it's not the people that turn this time. It's Jesus that turns. Do you see that? They're all happy with him, and he doesn't seem to want to accept that they're happy with him. They're like, Jesus, we love you. And he's like, no, you don't. And let me tell you why. Because Jesus is not content to have admirers. Jesus is not content to have fans. He doesn't want hangers-on. He doesn't want well-wishers. He doesn't want that sort of thing. He comes promising good news, and the people say, great, we love good news. Let's get it going. But they don't know the depth of what they are affirming, and so Jesus brings it out. In verse 23, it says, and he said to them, or this is right after they're marveling at how amazing it is that he's speaking all this and he said to them doubtless you will quote to me this proverb physician heal yourself what we've heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well probably what's happening here is that Capernaum was one of the places that he had been in that summary statement of verse 14 and 15 when he went around Galilee and the power of the spirit and he probably did healings at Capernaum we can gather that from this passage. He probably healed people there, and so they would want him to do healings too. But note that they hadn't even asked yet for him to do a healing. But Jesus is telling him, I know what you're thinking about. This is what you're going to ask. This is where you're going. And then in verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And we understand this principle. Right? Familiarity breeds contempt, and you can't go home again, all that sort of stuff. Many of the Old Testament prophets were rejected by their own people, and Jesus would be no different. But again, he's kind of bringing this on himself. It's like no prophet is acceptable in his, own, in his hometown. And to this point in the story, he was very accepted. He was celebrated. They loved him being there. But he's like, I'm not acceptable to you. He is bringing this on himself. They were happy with him, but he was not happy with them for some reason. And it's because he knew what they really wanted. And so he's turning things back on them. And then he keeps talking, and then he makes them really, really upset. And he does this by referencing two Old Testament stories about prophets, one about Elijah and one about his successor, Elisha. In verses 25 and 26, he calls to mind the story from 1 Kings 17. There was a great drought in the land of Israel, 
And though, of course, there were many widows in the land in those days, it says Elijah went and he lived with and he helped and he healed the son of a widow in Sidon, which was a Gentile area. Like he left Israel to do his work. So he healed this widow's son. He raised the widow's son and she was not an Israelite. And then in verse 27, he's referring to 2 Kings 5, when Elisha, the successor to Elijah, he healed a Syrian man of leprosy. And Jesus says, it's not like there were any shortage of lepers in Israel. There were plenty of them then, just as there are plenty now. And so he went, though, and healed someone who wasn't an Israelite. He healed a Syrian. And so he shares these stories. And he doesn't even call you know out the implication of it but the people get the implication of it and they get really mad verse 28 when they heard these things all the synagogue were filled with wrath because both of these stories happened during times when Israel as a nation had turned away from God and to idols and so God sent his prophets to live and work with Gentiles and then so Jesus was casting the Israelites and the Nazarenes here, casting his former neighbors in that role of apostate Israel. So he's saying, this is not just for you, thinking that you're poor and outcast and oppressed, and that Jesus said that I've come for you. He says, think about the people who you have considered lacking in faith, the people that you have sought to oppress yourselves, the people that you look down on and cast out and refuse to associate with. It's for them too. You don't get special status as an Israelite. You don't get special status as one of my hometown buddies. This is going to be for everyone. And what he's really implying here is he's saying to the people, you don't really want me. You don't really want what I'm bringing to you. You act like you do, and you like the sound of good news and of a message of freedom. You're okay with the Messiah from your hometown, but you don't really want to be a part of what I am here to do. And Jesus then is bringing their rejection of him out into the open before it's even happened, and he's saying this is nothing new. This has happened before. If you read your Bibles, no prophets are accepted. And so they get so mad at this that they drive him out of town to the edge of a cliff where they intend to throw him off the cliff and kill him. They're probably intending to stone him as a false prophet, and if the initial fall didn't kill him, then they'd finish him off with with rocks, make sure that they got the job done. But it never happens. One of the most remarkable verses there, verse 30, it just says, but passing through their midst, he went away. okay, like they're in a mad, they're going to throw him off a cliff. And so Jesus is like, I'm going to leave. I don't want to be thrown off a cliff today. So see you guys later. Luke doesn't tell us anything about how this happens. He he just leaves us to wonder about it. But the point is, it's not Jesus's time yet. And so he doesn't die. It's not his time to die. So he's not going to die. There was a movie that came out like 20 years ago called Big Fish. Uh, Tim Burton movie, and the main character in the story is a sick old man who's been known all his life for telling tall tales and these big stories. But his family is worried about him because he's dying, but he swears that when he was little, he looked into a witch's eye and he was given a vision of how he would die. And so he'd say things to his son like, people don't need to worry about me so much. It's not my time yet. This is not how I go. And when his son asks, what did you see in the witch's eye? How does it happen? The father says, surprise ending. Wouldn't want to ruin it for you. 
But in the meantime, he lives with the confidence of an immortal man because he knows how he's going to die, or at least he acts like he does. But Jesus really does have that. This is not how I go, he says, and so he leaves. There's another story in the Gospel of John where it says that some people wanted to kill Jesus and arrest him, and John says, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Nobody dies a minute before God has appointed them to die. That's true of you. That was certainly true of Jesus. He wasn't going to get tossed off a cliff by some angry backwoods mob because he had a plan to be hung on a cross by an angry urban mob. And in his death, he would pay for the sins of the world by dying a death that we deserve, by taking our penalty upon him, by forgiving our sins and canceling the debt that we owe to God. And in doing this, he would bring that freedom, that salvation, that healing that he promised when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah that day in Nazareth. He would bring the year of Jubilee, the canceling of all debts, the ending of sin's slavery for anyone who would put their faith in him, Jew, Gentile, Nazarene, whatever, anyone who sees in themselves that they are poor and need to depend on God, who see that they have nothing to add for salvation. Jesus brings it to them. He brings it to us. This is the good news, but we should ask, how will we respond to it? How will we respond to Jesus? Because what we see in our text today is a response that Jesus himself deemed inadequate, but a response that is so common. And what was the response among people? It was, first of all, to acknowledge Jesus as a great teacher, Say, we love Jesus. We love Jesus as a great teacher. We saw this in verse 15, when he taught in the synagogues and was glorified by all. We saw in verse 22, when everyone in Nazareth, after he was teaching, marveled at the words coming out of his mouth. And it's not surprising because Jesus was an amazing teacher. What he said about forgiveness and about treating others as yourself, about loving your enemies, about avoiding greed, about growing in contentment, about humility, all of these things have lasting relevance and meaning and significance. And this is why so many, Christian or not, view Jesus as a great teacher or a great spiritual figure. But to see Jesus as a great teacher is not enough. And he's drawing that out here. Secondly, we see people responding, I believe, to Jesus's social agenda here, or what they perceive it to be, by appealing to this radical concept of jubilee, by offering hope for the poor, release for prisoners, healing for those in need, and freedom for the oppressed. Jesus promotes what could be an incredible social vision, and people have latched on to that, often to make Jesus the mascot for their preferred political position. And Jesus does offer here a wonderful social vision. And we should do our best to follow Jesus, not only in our private lives, but in the public sphere. And it may be that what Jesus has taught and modeled does have implications for wealth inequality and prison reform and health care and justice, but it probably won't look at all like what any political party is pushing. But regardless, if you see Jesus as a social activist, and this is the extent of how you view him, you haven't viewed him rightly. And third, we see people looking to Jesus for some perceived personal benefit. At least I think that's what's implied by their excitement over a hometown boy potentially being the Messiah. What an opportunity for us, they think. And likewise, People today see Jesus as a way to find success. Maybe that's in a theological sense. 
like believing that, you know, being in with Jesus will lead to health and wealth and prosperity, like the TV preachers will tell you. Or maybe it's a more pragmatic view, like that through presenting myself as a Christian businessman, I'm going to reap the networking benefits that will come from this and the trust that I'll gain in that or something like that. But Jesus will not accept these ways of coming to him. You don't come to him as a great teacher or a social advocate or a way of moving up in the world. You come to Jesus because he offers good news to the poor, and regardless of your station in life, you recognize that you are poor, that you do not have a righteousness of your own that you can depend on. You see your need to be thrust on divine resources, to depend on God. You come to Jesus because he has promised liberty to captives and you see that you are captive. We all have this great idea of of freedom as Americans, but we can't escape the reality that we are all prisoners. We are prisoners not only to the constraints of society and the world, but we are prisoners to our own sins, to our own shortcomings. We can't escape our bodies, which are broken and in need of healing and redemption, and Jesus offers that. And so you come to him for that because you are a prisoner in need of being freed, and he will free you. And you come to Jesus because you are blind, and you need to recover your sight. Scripture tells us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is veiled to those who are perishing, that there's something in the way that they cannot see it, that God has blinded their eyes to seeing the light of the glory of Christ. But through Jesus, Scripture tells us, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we see him, and there's no more compelling testimony in Scripture than that which is found in John chapter 9, when Jesus healed a man born blind, and they pressed the man, asking who healed him, what was he all about, and the man said, I don't know, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And millions of people throughout the last 20 centuries have had the same story. I was blind, and I came to Jesus, and I'm not anymore. So you come to Jesus because you are blind. You may have the physical capability of sight, but you need Jesus to see things rightly in a spiritual sense. And he heals our blindness, and he gives us new sight. And so you come to him for that, and you come to Jesus because you are oppressed. You feel worn down and burdened and beaten down. Maybe that's coming from other people or another person. Maybe that's coming from your circumstances. Maybe it's coming from yourself. Maybe it's coming from your sense of sin and guilt and shame that you can't seem to shake. And Jesus says, I'm here to remove the burden. I'm here to free you from this. Whatever it is that is oppressing you, he will meet you in the midst of it and he will free you from that in the way that seems right to him. But he does this when we come to him rightly. We don't have to know everything about Jesus But we have to know that we are great sinners and that he is a great savior and a good master. And so we bow before him in repentance and faith and we receive the saving benefits he offers and we come under his lordship and we submit ourselves to him and we say, this is what I'm doing. I'm following Jesus. We sang this last week. I have decided to follow Jesus and no turning back. And we can't come to him any other way. You look at when his hometown neighbors tried to do so, and he sniffed that out so fast and turned it on them. He's perceptive like that. You can't fool Jesus. You can fool other people. 
into thinking you're following Jesus. But who cares? What have you achieved? He knows everything. You can't fool him. So you come to him on his terms. There are no other way to do so. And when you do so, you get freedom. You get forgiveness. You get all the rest. You get Jesus when you come to him on his terms. And this applies to Christians and non-Christians. Of course, if you're not a Christian, you should come to Jesus and find that salvation that is in him. But as Christians too, how often are we looking to Jesus in some inadequate way, thinking we can use him to get what we want, trying to follow his example or his teachings in our strength instead of leaning on him. We're not condemned or cast out by God when we do this, but we are called repeatedly in a life of repentance to realign ourselves to Christ, to come back to him rightly, to repent of our sins, to receive his grace, to receive the freedom and the favor that he offers. And one great way to do that is by coming to the Lord's table. And so we're going to do that uh, this morning now, as we close the message, I'll invite uh, our, whoever's playing music here back up, and I will invite you to come and to meet the Lord at his table. We have bread and cups set out on the tables beside me, and we remember how Jesus invites us to come and to eat with him. Having brought us liberty, having brought us freedom, having given us sight, he comes and he renews that with us every time we come and meet him at his table. The only qualifications for coming to his table is to be found in Christ, to have come to him on his terms, to have repented of your sins, to, trusted in, to have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness that he offers. And so if that's you, we invite you to come and to join with us at the Lord's table. Would you pray with me, and then we'll take a moment of reflection as the music team plays, and then as you see fit, you can come up and grab the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we will share them together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus, the proclamation of your favor that comes through him. And we know that that comes because of his death and resurrection. And so as we come to meet you at his table, God, we pray that we'd remember that, that we don't come with a righteousness of our own, but we come looking to the righteousness of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. We don't come to Jesus as one who is only a good teacher or a social advocate or a way to move up in the world. We come because we are poor and we come because we are captive and we are blind and we are oppressed and Jesus has promised to free us from all these things, and he has when we come to him in faith for who he is. So help us to come to him in that faith now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.